Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the International Biodynamic Guild podcast. I'm your host, Will Bratton, and today we're joined by Chris Trump. Chris is a world-renowned Korean natural farmer and the first to use KNF on a large-scale farm. He hails from the Big Island of Hawaii, where his family's been producing macadamia nuts on 800 acres for over 30 years. He's since gone on to take the Korean natural farming teachings of Master Cho globally and help numerous operations at scale adopt them. KNF has been all the rage in recent years, so we're very happy to have secured a bit of Chris's time. You can find Chris, his educational courses, and more at chrisTrump.com. Chris, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure, Will. Thanks for having me. Well, before we get into the weeds and KNF, I'd like to direct everyone to your site and the five-day natural farming intensive that you'll be leading in Nevada City, California, September 29th through October 3rd. I'll publish this episode immediately so that anyone listening that might have the opportunity to attend can be aware. Nevada City, California, September 29th, chrisTrump.com. Now, before the show, I was watching some of your videos on your YouTube channel, and it was really great to see when Master Cho came to visit your family's macadamia nut operation, and he was reviewing your work, and he gave you a warm pat on the back to communicate you know, that you, you've been doing a really good job. And it's, it's awesome when you see someone living in the time of their master and being able to share that with them. It, things like that really bring a deep satisfaction to our short time here. Who is Master Cho? Where did his work originate, and how did the two of you meet? Mm, good questions. Um, yeah, Master Cho, um, we, you know, that's a very much um, uh, Asian um, denotation of um, authority, of honor, to, to call master. It's it's much like uh, you would think martial arts, you know, Um where, you know, there's teacher sensei. Um, he also speaks Japanese and the Japanese, um, community that learned from him call him sensei. Um, so yeah, it's, um, uh, his full name is Cho Hon Yu and, um, he, um, is from South Korea and, um, had the opportunity um, to kind of see and get a glimpse, just I, I, he would say he saw what was coming, that it was bad. Um, the um, kind of agricultural, um, kind of conventional ag came to South Korea later than it came to mainland USA um, as their kind of industrial re- revolution came later. And um, he watched it all going down. He said, this isn't good. We need another way for farmers. And, um, he, um, went and studied in Japan, um, studied enzymatic theory with a teacher of his and, um, some other kind of passed down traditional agriculture, which is very steeped in, um, good solid science. And, um, he came back with that knowledge and traditional Korean, um, agricultural practices and um and he would say some dreams and some things from 4-h and he began to uh as a chicken farmer um sharing his uh he would he would still say today that um korean natural farming chicken farming is the jewel of natural farming um it's it's dear to his heart and um so he um, began teaching this um, in Korea. It was on the back end of the, um, the Korean War. And so there was a pretty big uh, heightened kind of um, awareness or um, kind of worry of um, communism in um, South Korea um, seeping in from North Korea. And so there was kind of like the secret police, if you will. And uh, his desire to bring together farmers to collaborate in making inputs and make life easier for farmers and teach farmers and share very openly and freely um, was viewed as um, a communist ideal. Um, He was taken in and interrogated um, really to death is um, what the interrogators thought. They zipped him up in a body bag and took him out of the interrogation room. Um, But Master Cho sat up um, on the way out. And to this day, he doesn't have much of his front teeth. As a result, he wears a denture. 
Um, but because of that kind of persecution and pressure against what he was trying to accomplish, um, he was kind of sent out of Korea to kind of let the uh, unrest blow over. And he ended up going to um, India, Thailand, and uh, several other places. Um, there's uh, information online on his work on the Gobi Desert in Africa. And um, yeah, so it was kind of like the negative pressure kind of forced natural farming to go out. And I think as a result, it actually um, has become much more um, known and uh, used internationally really because of that. But um, he's a um, passionate man, passionate about world change, about there being another way for farmers. Um, I would say by and large, he made a great deal of sacrifices in his life and did not um, capitalize on a bunch of uh, money opportunities that he could have. Um, choosing instead to keep kind of a pure philosophy uh, that this should be inexpensive for farmers and that farmers should have the ability to make income. He would say that the grocer should drive the Hyundai and the farmer should drive the Mercedes. Um, and uh, yeah, but um, somebody that's been um, very uh, generous with me um, I first got to sit with him his only five-day training he ever did in the U.S. Um, was in my tiny podunk town in um, North Kohala on the big island of Hawaii, 40 minutes to the nearest stoplight. And um, he yeah, came and uh, with his daughter divulged kind of all of his information. And then there was, you know, 10 years of going back and forth to South Korea for me to sit with him on a bus or sit with him and, and learn these little nuances and philosophical truths. Um, Master Cho is still teaching. Um, he actually called our mutual friend, Dr. Park and asked me to come out um, in October, but it might be delayed because of COVID. Um, but um, yeah, he's, uh, he's a pretty, um, pretty awesome dude and has i would say what i've come to understand about korean natural farming um and master cho but really the whole method as as a kind of ideal or a a tool for farmers is that the the strength of it is really that it is a keyhole glimpse into the natural world how natural law works in general so that a farmer can not only use this set in place kind of practice but can actually learn to adapt for their environment for their scenario for their whatever comes their way with an understanding of how nature works and how they can partner with nature to grow food and so that understanding i would say is the the high high value of this and um i really um it tickles me to see students kind of get it all of a sudden they're coming up with a new product like a fermented hot sauce for their you know pepper farm because they're like oh i get how all the fermentation works and i can create my own dynamic within it it's very very fun yeah, I know when you were saying that he was uh, utilizing or including uh, traditional Korean farming, I was thinking he, he's also including traditional Korean culinary arts, um, it, it feels. Uh, with Absolutely. the So what, uh, if you'll tell us, what's what's different about KNF to otherwise organic and regenerative farming or permaculture? What's KNF's uh, specific appeal? Um. For me, as a, um, a commercial farmer, we were farming 750 acres of macadamia nuts on the Big Island and needed a better way to do it. Um, traditional, organic, you know, binomial inputs and applying them um, was not a cost-effective answer for us. Um, and so for me, the ability to scale and the cost-effectiveness of Korean natural farming while remaining um, effective 
um, meaning my, my maintaining yields, maintaining uh, quality or improving in quality, um, that I can farm for income using these methods, um, that it works. I mean, that's, that's the crux of it, but yeah, it's, um, really the, the thing that I would say sets it apart is the IMO process. And so that's indigenous microorganism. And it's just, it's just a very, um, specific, nuanced and intentional way of cultivating indigenous, um, and diverse microbial communities for establishment in ag land. And I would say uniquely better than um, other ways I've seen of both composting and um, trying to coax uh, microbes into ag um, soil. This is just an effective, um, I, I, I describe it as an elegant method. It's nicely packaged. It's not the only way to tend to the microbial life of the soil. It's not the only way to partner with nature to grow food, but it is an elegant method. So I would say that we're all uh, in the regenerative world, all very much on the same team and locking arms, um, setting out to overcome quite the mountain of change that needs to be instituted. And I would say Korean uh, natural farming is a, incredible tool in our um, collaborative uh, tool belt um, for accomplishing, you know, quality food production while at the same time being sustainable and sustainability being something where a farmer can sustain farming, continue to be there um, financially on their farm uh, is, is a, a aspect of sustainability that I think is very important. I've also heard you speak to, uh, you know, permaculture is perhaps the ideal, but that uh, the auto mechanic or, um, you know, the attorney or whoever uh, might not take on their own permacultural food production and that there is still a, a place for specialization. Um, and, uh, and further, that perhaps uh, IMO or otherwise KNF, uh, indigenous microorganisms and or Korean natural farming is something like the, the fecal transplant of the of the uh, agricultural organism? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, um, definitely those are, those are words I've used. And, uh, it's interesting. I was in China. I sit on the, um, research and development board for the international macadamia society. And I speak, uh, once a year in China to a room full of scientists about, you know, just production methods we're using and, uh, helping people kind of understand and everybody wants to move that direction, but they're quite scared to change their processes just because of the risk involved in trying anything new. But I was speaking uh, a couple years ago, um, maybe 2019 in, uh, in China, maybe it's 2018. It might've been the previous speaking year. Anyways, um, I finished my talk and a scientist comes up to me and introduces himself and I'm terribly, uh, embarrassed i've forgotten his name but um he's um just tickled pink that i'm using fecal matter transplant because i used it as an analogy to help this room full of scientists and farmers understand what i was explaining with um tending to the microbial life of the soil and um he was so excited because he's the scientist responsible for developing FMT, fecal matter transplant. That is his brainchild. And so he's like just so stoked that I've used his technique to, you know, in this agricultural soil context. And uh, he just, he got a kick out of it. It was a good conversation. That's awesome. But yeah, it's, um, I, I think it is, uh, I think it is an important tool for us to move forward globally. So on your website, uh, I'm particularly fond of your inputs page. Uh, you go over how to make about eight different uh, Korean natural farming preparations, including the indigenous microorganisms or IMO. There, I, I've, like I said, I've gone over a few of your videos. There's IMO4, there's IMO2, uh, IMO1, IMO3, IMO5. How many central preps uh, are there? And can you talk us through each one? Yeah, totally. And um, 
yeah, this is, um, you know, um, one of our tendencies in the U.S. anyway is um, we hear something or taught something and before we're finished, the the teacher is finished explaining to us, we are down the road 100 miles, improving the process, making it better according to what we already know, fitting it into our current context and or opinions on any and everything and we'll never actually even try the original recipe um, given to us because we've already improved it or so we think in our minds and there's very much a american trait um it's um i think a superpower we're innovative in a lot of ways and so i think I'm not knocking it completely, but I think here it becomes quite the hindrance to success. Um, this process of um, making, cultivating indigenous microorganisms is actually um, incredibly nuanced and, and scientific um, in, its, in its reasoning, in its execution. And so um, what it is, is we're, we're taking... Um, so say our, our ag land, really, it got wiped out by um, just misuse. Um, maybe it was slated for development and a bunch of earth movers came in and ripped apart everything and then put it back down and, you know, planted grass. And now we basically lost much of the cultures of microbial, you know, communities that were there for a thousand years. And or, you know, it was ag land used in conventional and um so you have, you know, you know, it's been knocked out by glyphosate and, you know, heavy salt fertilizers. That that void actually um, reduces the ability of soil to cycle nutrients, reduces the ability of plants to have access to the nutrients in that environment without um, microbial diversity present, microbial life to partner with, and so. The IMO process is this tool to correct that. Um, really, anywhere in the world, in any context, this is effective because it's not um, it's not reliant on um, a product, you know, purchased or or brought in from somewhere. It's not reliant on the um, the the financial you know ability to purchase these expensive products it's um it's simply accessible dirt cheap to anyone in the world um and will be effective in their context because of that first word in the imo kind of acronym is indigenous so we're going out to a wild place so say our farmland's depleted um or sterile and However, our, um, our hills aren't. Our forests have been untouched for a thousand years. And so going up there, finding these places of undisturbed diversity where nature's had a chance to strike a balance um, in that soil food lab or in that, that um, whole life underground kind of scenario and on the trees and um and we um, cultivate that out on a rice. Uh, rice as an auger because rice has a really great fat um, protein profile, which are fungal foods. So um, we grow it out on the rice, we get a bloom, and then we cause that to go dormant by mixing it with something dry, kind of like a you'd salt fish for a long sea voyage. You remove the ability of microbes to access available water molecules and everything freezes in time stops no more furthering of generations of microbial development it's frozen at that generation just waiting to be reintroduced to a water available environment and so we we basically take these microbes out of a natural environment and put them in cryofreeze to use borrow a sci-fi term you know it's like Hey, we're going on a you know five million light year voyage. You're gonna arrive there 300 years in the future. We're just gonna put you in fr uh, frozen states until you get there, so you can wake up and populate the new world. Well, that's kind of what we're doing. But now what we have is a jar 
of indigenous inoculum from our environment shelf-stable for the farmer. Farmer doesn't have to run out to that forest and dig around in the leaves for mycelium again. Um, he's got it now on the shelf from that spring collection or whatever. And ideally, we'd have multiple collections from different times of years and slightly different areas to maximize the diversity. But also, we're not removing something from the forest, per se. We're not going in and harvesting a bunch of soil and or leaves or anything, really. We're taking a box fully contained with rice in it, placing it in the environment. Microbes move into it because there's a food source there and bloom on it. And then we remove our box and tidy up our space, having really taken nothing other than allowed some of what was already there to grow into our box. Um, well, it remains where it was um, growing in the soil. It is, it, you know, it's also been duplicated or, or copied into our box, if you will. So it's really neat because if this did, um, you know, if the plot for world takeover in agriculture did happen, we still wouldn't be going out in mass and disturbing the forest. We'd be going out and, and gently, um, um, you know, borrowing, if you will, but not even not even in a way that that takes away. Um, so I, I love that aspect of it. So now we have IMO2, that that cryogenically frozen um, or really just in um in something that's dry, that sugar is that dryness binds up all those water molecules available, actually yanks it out of the bodies of microbes. So it causes all our fungi to sporulate and um, the microbes that can go dormant to cyst and or um, and wait for reintroduction of waters. I would say that in my opinion, IMO2 is the greatest single item in natural farming that somebody can go and have their own indigenous culture of diverse microbial community, shelf-stable on their shelf, usable to put in any tea or preparation or anything, um, is um, like, like nothing else. It's, it's an incredible tool um, on the tool belt of a farmer. But then there's a process to grow it out on the substrate, which um, I have, through a whole lot of side-by-side -side trials, have come to determine that Oats and rice bran, um, and oats fully crimped or milled, not whole oats, because that sheath needs to be disturbed, gives microbes access to those um, kernels. Um, that oats and or rice bran or both together are the best thing to grow these microbes out on. Again, because of the fat protein profile for the fungi. It's really easy to produce high-quality, diverse, beneficial bacteria. But the fungi is much more nuanced, and so a lot of the processes in IMO are aimed at caring for this slightly more delicate cousin, um, the fungal life of our indigenous cultures. And then we take that finished material grown out on wood chips and rice bran or oats. Um, it's bloomed, it's full of mycelium, it's beautiful, smells like baking bread, and we mingle it with native soil or our farmland soil or some air, some soil from around the area, maybe some red soil full of iron to help with um, the nutrient profile. And um, we grow it out in soil, which kind of mingles our microarthropods and nematodes and flagellates and et cetera. All the kind of next level of the food chain mingles with all this fungi and yeast and bacteria that we're cultivating. And we kind of have a social gathering to make everybody friends and strike a balance. Now, when we apply it to our ag land, it's already done that balance striking. So even if we have delicate young crops and we apply it down at their, um, uh, on the soil zone around their roots, there's no shock. There's no disruptive kind of um, drawback that you can get from some amendments. It's like a seamless, you know, um, integration that happens um, because we've already kind of in an isolated place with plenty of food and drinks thrown that social party to get everybody on the same page. Um, and then IMO5 is really the fertilizer aspect of the IMO process. So, you know, say you've got microbes established or you're, you've got a heavy feeding crop in the fall, before you know, you put everything to bed, you might make a big old batch of IMO5 full of a high nitrogen material like a 
manure or um, frass from black soldier fly larvae or, you know, food scraps or whatever. And you've made this kind of high quality compost, kept it under a certain temperature, um, but really um, fully process your, your nitrogens. Um, and that gets um, put down, you know, well, plants are growing before you plant um, in the fall, before you put it to bed, whatever. But you're really able to really, if, especially if you bring in some of your mineral um, components into that IMO5, you're capable of fully feeding your crops with an application, a, a soil application. And you don't really have a whole lot of feeding to do after that. We still feed. There's foliar options, there's liquid IMO, which are developed for large scale, but really IMO5 can be the 100% answer for growing things. And there's some people that just do that. They do nothing else, no foliars. They simply put their IMO5 down, plant into it, and they have disease resistance and pest resistance and um, extremely fertile, tasty food. So, yeah. So you just shared with us the you know the impact of heavy salt fertilizers and uh, you know gave the analogy of the salted fish and the cryogenic freezing sci-fi visual uh, in your no smell KNF piggery tutorial you combine what I understand to be Hugel culture with these indigenous microorganisms and biochar to create a no smell environment but you also use salt and uh, there appear to be a number of other recipes that utilize seawater. Uh, what is the sea? Uh, pardon me. What is the salt and the sea salt for in in those uh, preparations? It's a great question, and yeah, I mean, it's funny because you say, "Oh, it's you know, no smell piggery is like Hugo culture," but I would say both of them are like nature. You know, um, Hugo culture and no smell piggery they work because they're like nature. You go into a forest, old growth forest, and everything's. Nothing ever smells. You're never going to come across a bear poop that's stinking up the, you know, 10-foot radius around it. Because as soon as it hits that ground, it's covered in life that's digesting it, deodorizing it, and uh, processing it into nutrients for the trees. And so, and that that heavy carbon fall down from the forest, um, that leaf litter that's constantly, you know, feeding that soil community is really that battery that we establish with both Hugo culture and uh, no smell piggery where we're putting that carbon in there as if we have a hundred years of forest fall down, you know, on our ground because the fungi to process that nitrogen pull from all that carbon reservoir and all the, um, all the cell walls of that carbon uh, rich material like wood, um, where there's fats and um, all kinds of, you know, um, components that they use to process the nitrogen with that into, um, you know, this kind of rich soil. And, um, yeah, so I would say that a lot of these regenerative practices really are going to have these overlapping spheres or real similarities when they're effective because they're being effective at emulating or partnering with natural law and um, getting to the seawater on that same note or same line. Um, you know, what is that first thing they give you when you go into a hospital with an illness? You know, what did, what do they do? What's one of the like hundred percent of the time protocols? Saline. Yeah, they, they, they get us on a drip of seawater, basically. Now, they don't use diverse minerals because, you know, it's Western medicine. So we're using a pretty narrow um, electrolyte drip. But um, if you look at humans and plants, if you look at a plant, for example, its blood is, um, I use the word blood, obviously plants don't have quote-unquote blood, but their blood is made up of seawater diluted at a 1 to 30 dilution. So um, Master Cho would say that the, um, the ocean is the mother of the land, that the land came up out of the ocean. And um, 
and so therefore is is kind of like that that comforting embrace if you will to our ag land and you see it in in plants their their cytoplasm their their um their juices are basically seawater diluted one to 30 and same thing with the human we we are our plasma is you know seawater diluted seawater and so to bring in um seawater when microorganisms are a lot like us too they're 70 percent water they have um electrolyte mix in their you know internal solutions um but also what we have in seawater our sea salt is this diverse um, mineral um, battery where there's tons of minerals, this huge 60, 70, 80 different types and all these kind of balanced um, ratios. And microbes pull on that mineral to process the carbon and the nitrogen. They use it to provide complex nutrients um, and, and, you know, through uh, they, the microbes all have these kind of um, enzymes present to to process nutrients into new components and compounds um, in conjunction with their relationship with the plant root zone, those exodus of the plants putting out to create um, this this cycling of food and nutrients for plants, for the microorganisms, for that whole soil food web and, and really this engine that turns in nature this incredible symphony that goes from sunlight to gravitational pull to archaea in the leaves that you know um cause the rainwater or the dew to be a specific nitrogen type that falls to the you know the um drip zone around the the feeder roots around the edge of the plants um you know leaves um all of it in conjunction. So seawater is this um, aspect or, or kind of um, health tonic to the whole system. And um, I think a lot of different um, regenerative practices have used seawater in various ways. But um, yeah, we don't use a ton of it. It's, we're not, we're not um, at risk of buildup. It's, um, it's a very balanced um kind of light use, but I think a really important aspect of what we're doing. No, that's awesome. I uh, And if you compare chlorophyll to hemoglobin, the parallels are uncanny. I mean, I think it's yeah. the only difference is mag, the only difference is magnesium versus iron. Um, can you, I, that's the first I've heard of this uh, archaea in the, in the leaves. I think, it, do you have anything more to add to that? Yeah, yeah, there was a great um, study done in Japan, um, I think a couple years ago. I actually spoke on it. I used it as a reference in one of my talks in China. But the um, what they studied is the Japanese cedar and the archaea in, excuse me, the archaea in the canopy um, are... Um, have a um, nitrification, nitrify inhibiting NIB. Ooh, I'm going to mess up the acronym. Anyways, there's a nitrification inhibiting bacteria or inhibiting aspect of these archaea in this leaf um, canopy, uh, living canopy of the cypress tree. And so what it does is as the dew comes or as the rain comes, they, they studied rainfall just outside of the canopy, catching it and looking at how it changed that nitrogen in the rain changed into nitrates and nitrites versus when it had hit the leaves and gotten inoculated by this archaea culture with these microbes in the leaves where those had a, a nitrification inhibiting aspect to them and they stopped that nitrification um nit nit that nitrogen cycle that was that naturally occurs in that rainfall they halted it at ammonium so because most plants and in my opinion most plants and especially your bigger plants like bushes and trees they prefer ammonium 
to nitrates. And this has also been studied. Um, there's a great, uh, I'll get into another study that's, that's breaking this down. But, um, but yeah, so, so what's happening is that through fall, through the canopy hits the kind of drip zone around the, where the feeder roots are. All that nitrogen that's coming through in that rain or in that dew or being yanked out of the atmosphere is actually being fed. It, it's feeding itself ammonium rather than allowing anything to go to nitrates or nitrites because those aren't ideal foods for that plant. So it is tending to the nitrogen cycle of its own environment and feeding itself its preferred food by the culture of microbes that it fosters in its canopy. And can you also inform us uh, of the nitrogen that's uh, carried by rainwater is also not bioavailable to plants and how this is critical? Yeah, so um, I, I'm not a nitrogen cycle expert. Um, and um, and I know that the, the rain, as it comes down, it, it's this, um, it's the nitrogen we have in the atmosphere and it isn't plant available. It does need to go through a change, but um, the the change might go to organic N and then from organic N, which is ammonium, into like a nitrate nitrite. Uh, that would be a normal thing that happens like in the cup where they don't allow it to touch the leaves and they're catching this rainfall. That's happening within 24 hours. It's converting that atmospheric nitrogen into nitrates and nitrites. Um, which we know to be plant foods. However, it is um, been studied that those are foods for weeds. Those are foods for our early successional plants. And if we look at food source, if you feed weeds ammonium, they don't reproduce and die. If you feed them nitrates, they go ballistic. If you feed trees ammonium, they go ballistic. If you feed them nitrates and nitrites, they will still produce. It is not their ideal food, and they won't produce as well. And so we have this dynamic. Another study, I think, to help kind of maybe answer the question you asked, was they looked at, um, I think, horsetail, um, this really common weed all over the world. And when fed... Um, it, it has rhizomes and, and is really prolific. It's extremely effective at growing if it's fed nitrates and nitrites. So if you're feeding it chemical fertilizer, your weeds will go ballistic. Um, if you feed it ammonium, it doesn't reproduce at all. It actually stops its entire life cycle and it will fade off entirely if it's only fed in ammonium. They did this study. This was done, I think, in um, Spain. Um, I have both these studies. I can probably um, find them for you. But it was a study done in Spain um, analyzing food sources for um, horsetail. And, Please. Um, yeah. It's, we, it's use, uh, we use horsetail in biodynamic preparation uh, 508. So I, I, I imagine the listeners would be interested. Um, so, uh, kind of along that bridging to biodynamics, there are a number of KNF preparations that utilize the animal kingdom. Uh, mm -hmm. some that use bone, some that use fish, uh, in mm -hmm. your videos, I see you use the cow skull as well, just, just in a different way. Can you tell us about mm -hmm. those? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, we use, so so in, in a lot of, in the setup of a natural farming farm, we would have the interplay of living um, animals um, with plants and that, that feed that goes back and forth. And even the plant, the animals with the animals, you know, the cow feed being um, a 10, could potentially 10 to 15% animal feed for pigs or chickens, you know, where you could harvest that, put it into um, a mix and, and do the ferment, um, for your, your smaller animal feeds and, and vice versa. Um, you know, in small quantities, this can be a real food source. Um, but yeah, we use, um, we use grain vinegars, um, and biochard bone. Um, and so, uh, like a rice vinegar with a biochard bone, you combine them and there's a chemical reaction that happens where the acid and the basic nature of that biochar 
um, react and causing that calcium phosphate to go into solution. Um, same thing with like a charred eggshell or um, calcium carbonate, like coral sand. We can cause a um, a um, chemical reaction to occur by mix, mingling those. And what we do is we compromise the organic bonds through heat and then expose them to kind of their opposite or their kind of uh, on the um, on the acid. You know, we have our, our acetic acid and then we have our, our calcium um, carbonate. And that combination creates uh, calcium acetate, which calcium acetate is, is one of the most wonderful um, forms of calcium we could feed our plants. Um, it's really available but really, there's only one way to come across it, and that's with a chemical reaction with vinegar. And so um, we do that. Um, we do we mingle um, sugars and fish with with fungi to um, break it down to create a, a liquid um, fish, a whole fish amendment. So instead of like a hydrolysate or a um, emulsion, emulsion, yeah, we um, we have a kind of a whole fish ferment, which um, we get crazy results from, really wonderful results. Um, uh, some, uh, let's see, I found those studies. Do you want the name of them? Should I send them to you in a yeah, you, link? You, if you would send me afterward, I'll include them in the, in the, the links in the show notes. Right. Thank you so much for doing that during. Multitasking, sorry. Yeah, it's awesome. And and just to point out, if I understand correctly, that it is important that the bones are not um, uh, reduced to to an ash or, or cooked to 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 white, right. but to be pyrolyzed and to be uh, carbonized. Yeah. There's still a lot of that uh, mineral is still present in uh, ash, but it changes and um, for the most part is considered less effective. Um, mm -hmm. You can have some white, but yeah, what you can't, <coughs> excuse me, what you can't have is un, uncharred bone. Um, it will rot in the vinegar. So it does need to be finished to, a, uh, you know, a completed biochar. It can be taken slightly past the ash, like the edges or some of it, um, mm -hmm. and you'll still get a high quality nutrient. But, um, yeah, you don't want it to turn all to ash. So it's a very controlled process. And I saw, I saw you using an open fire. Have you tried it in a biochar kiln? Is that more or less effective? Oh, yeah. No. Um, retorts and kilns are amazing. Currently, okay. I use uh, a rocket stove. Um, right I haven't on. made a new video on it, but we just take um, two basically metal grain buckets, five-gallon like feed buckets, and uh, create a rocket stove out of it. And so the top gets filled to the top with, um, you know, boiled bones where a lot of the gristles off and the bottom's filled with wood. You light the fire once, walk mm -hmm. away, come back. Everything's perfectly biocharred and you didn't have to flip or turn anything. Yeah, no, the open fire, turning it on the open fire um, is probably the most tedious, right. annoying and time consuming job I've ever done. <laughs> Uh, so, um, it, when we'd spoken in the past, uh, I, I was, uh, kind of interested by your view of some of the biodynamic preps like uh, BD 500 horn manure through your, uh, Korean natural farming lens. What do you think of the, uh, BD 500 horn manure process? Yeah, I think that, um, I love the, I love the reasoning. I love the science that, that got us there you know, to be using that. And it was, you know, I say science, even though there was no university studying it when it was developed, because science is a study of nature through observation and experimentation. That's the definition of science. And so who, what better scientists um, traditionally than farmers who are observing, making experiments, keeping what works and excluding what doesn't work. And so this horn technique of going out and this active microbial community that's happening at the peak of farm production, you know, at the end of the season um, and stuffing that horn with that 
microbial life and burying it below the frost layer in Greenland, um, which allowed for the microbes to kind of stay to some degree, though kind of dormant in their horn. They were they had food and some sort of activity was maintained. To then dig that up in the spring before all the microbes have woken up around because everything's frozen um, and reestablish or inoculate your ag land with that, you're jump-starting your entire um, uh, soil machine, your engine that's happening in the soil. You're, the farmer's getting a jump start, which makes all the sense in the world. Um, you know, do we have to have a horn to do that? No, I can I can do that with an inoculum on the shelf in IMO2. It's the same concept. And so I think that, again, it's it's this mirrored process, this, um, you know, basically it's natural law where b- both both methods are reaching in and accessing a, a natural law principle that microbes cycle the nutrients of the soil in our cropland. And the more activity you can get, the more diversity you can get, and the earlier you can get everything kind of going in the spring um, through care, a farmer's care for his soil, that you're going to do better in production, in disease resistance, in yield, etc. And um, so, yeah, I love it. I love it. And at the same time, you know, is the horn necessary? I don't think so. You know, is it is it is it uh, taking anything away? No. Could it be that there's um, a next level kind of enzymatic um, process that's happening with the um, makeup of the horn itself being digested and made, made available to the microbes? Absolutely. Do I understand exactly how that works? No. But in all of this, in IMO, in natural law in general, what I love, what I love about fecal matter transplant. Let's let's go there to explain this this thing that Please. I love about Please. all of this. Um, is we do this, this is the widely accepted medical practice administered to humans where we're all worried about, you know, um, being sued and all these things, you know, we we really careful on what we allow humans to have because somebody's going to sue us if we do it wrong. Well, people are dying because their microbial diversity has been knocked out in their gut and there's... Mm -hmm. There's no way to help them with the traditional approach of Western medicine because there's nothing to kill. There, we don't have to kill anything. What's wrong is there's lack. We need life. We need to bring back life. That's why this person's sick and not able to get nutrients from their food because we don't have blades in our guts. We rely on these partners in our guts to give us access to the nutrients of our food. And so... We need life and to go and take a chunk of manure, a chunk of feces out of a healthy person, put it in a capsule and give it as a suppository or an oral to the unhealthy person and say, there you go, you're cured. And it works in one treatment. Mm -hmm. My favorite part about it, we have no freaking clue what microbes we just inoculated that person with. Nobody's studying it. We're not mapping it. Nobody cares. What I love about fecal matter transplant is our utter ignorance because it's too big for us. And, 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 we're, and we're using it as a well-established medical practice in treating humans. And so, so here we have the horn buried underground or this IMO culture from your forest. And we're saying, you know what? There's a lot of stuff in there. And we don't have to isolate each microbe and know what each one does and try and understand it on an individual level outside of community. We're saying that it works in nature. It'll work in our farmland because nature's good at making, making life balance and, and, um, and growing food. And so the, the, the ignorance, the humility, that's, that's the humility with which we approach this vastly complex um, system is the beauty of it for me. We, we don't know. And all of academia, I, I advise a doctorate program in South Korea and I get to talk to scientists all the time who love to further their education. And in all of academia, we understand almost nothing of what we're talking about here today. 
almost nothing at all. I mean, like 0.03% of what goes on in the microbiological world. And most of that's pathogens. So this Mm -hmm. beneficial dynamic that we're playing with, that is how nature works, um, is, is a, a wonderful mystery. And it's, and it's not even that mysterious, you know, in, in, in one sense, it's kind of like, we can almost take it for granted that nature is whatever you want to call it, well-designed, like a symphony, like every note in its place, every player on on tempo, like, and we can just kind of step in and join arms and dance along, like, that's pretty, that's pretty epic and, um, and humbling. Awesome. I, I, uh, I agree with most everything. I, I will point out a, a few things that the horn is a, is a biological vessel. Uh, it, it's a dense protein structure that doesn't allow for, uh, you know, high, uh, frequency particles to pass through it. There's all sorts of other things going on. Um, I, I wonder if, if perhaps if you reevaluated it, if there might not be an opportunity to combine the two things and come up with something better than BD500 to, uh, you know, uh, using some of the KN, KNF um, uh, approaches. Uh, I do, uh, along that, again, so along the line of biodynamics, is there an astronomical component in KNF or your work otherwise? Um. There is, um, and yeah, to speak to your, you know, um, kind of thrown out question of, I wonder if there's, uh, something even better, like I am so open to that. And, um, and I, I would say one of the things that I love about master Cho is the permission he gave for it to be finished for it to be, um, to move beyond what he, um, came up with or, or brought together. And, um, yeah, sitting on some car rides, he leaned over and said, you know, through our friend, Master uh, Dr. Park, because, you know, we don't speak the same language, but he said, natural farming is not finished. You have to finish it. And I would, I would say that that could be applied to our ways of growing things with partnering with natural law in general, you know, biodynamics, permaculture, and otherwise. Like there is more to learn about this vast symphony and how we can best partner with it. And, um, I am sure that, um, that bone, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of really cool things we're experimenting with, including, um, cultivating, um, you know, predatory fungi that eat beetles, um, in our preps so that we have an integrated pest management with our IMO. Um, we call it IPMO, um, super effective we've done a bunch of trials on it now we just need to teach it and let everybody play with it because it's um it's a way anywhere in the world that somebody can cultivate uh a a basically carapace eating fungal um, predator um that's going to protect your ag land from grasshoppers or rose beetles or you know basically um and it can be done anywhere with you know with nothing with with literally bugs and rice you can you can create a extremely high quality you know um pest management program and so i i am very open to being um to learning that there's a better way to do it and um and i don't think that permaculture biodynamics or any of the regenerative proper uh, practices are in conflict in any way um i think that all of them can um that we can learn and 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 really because there's such a journey ahead of us to overcome the kind of dominant paradigm or really what what the current agricultural system looks like i think we really do need to link arms um and i teach that every time i teach that there's not you know we're not doing you know um highfalutin nose in the air camps of this this is about um this is about partnering for systemic change so that our children have medicine on the shelves when they go to buy food you know and and whatever that looks like um i'm excited about it and open to it um looking nothing like it does right now so yeah absolutely um the astronomical um it isn't um it isn't like I would say in, in Master Cho's books and in 
and uh, the kind of natural farming philosophy, which there's a ton of natural farming philosophy, really, really wonderful thought that is um, we get into and teach. And um, I've learned a lot from um, the um, component is far more um, centered on uh, that, that, that aspect, that kind of line of thinking with the celestial bodies is much more focused on the farmer and what's going on in the farmer's heart the intentionality and or um, approach that he comes to his farm with, that he deals with his animals with or she, that she cultivates microbes with. Because that that electromagnetic field that we all exude or whatever you want to call it, the intention in our heart, um, has a direct impact on um, everything we're doing on our farm. Master Cho would say a farmer can only farm as big as their heart. Their farm can only be as big as their heart because that's where, you know, cultivation and, um, and the love of the farmer uh, cares for the land and, and the, you know, plants and or animals. And, and I, would, I would say that um, the, um, the depth of meaning in that is, is pretty profound. Um, the the moon chart is definitely something we look at, um, and I would say that that gravitational pull and that waxing gibbous moon is something that's deep in Hawaiian culture, um, with nods to that helping that microbial growth happen when there's that upward pull towards full moon. That the there's actually a a, um, a decreased energy for growth that occurs, or or a help the pull actually helps with um, both plant and fungal growth. Um, and so we see that, um, we've observed that really anecdotally, but um, we talk about it, that that waxing gibbous is, um, or in Hawaii, Mahina um, moon is, is really considered to be that, um, that special moon for um, the time of fungal growth and or planting. Um, so, yeah, but otherwise it really does, it, it centers on the farmer and that um, kind of meditative, um, intentional, um, you know, when I, I'll say it this way. When we were sitting in uh, class the first time I really sat down for a full class with Master Cho, um, my friend Poncho leans over to me. Poncho is, uh, you know, Neil Young and Crazy Horse. Mm-hmm. Pon- Poncho's band is Crazy Horse. So it's this rocker wonderful man and he's sitting next to me taking notes uh, as master chose talking we look over and there's like every other word's love I'm like i'm like trying to figure out how to scale this wheelbarrow scale practice for 750 <laughs> acres and i look at my notes and every other word's love and me and punch are like what do we do with this like what is this that we're hearing and how do we I'm, I'm, my brain's breaking a little bit, right? American culture to Asian culture. and But um, Hawaiian culture has so much of that um, connectivity uh, with land in it that I uh, was well-equipped to kind of tease out this understanding. And, and really, I for the American mind, I describe it as a conscientious care for what we're doing. Uh, uh, and, you know, you... Master Cho talks so much about, you know, would you would you feed that to your child? Would you care for your child like you're caring for your land or your animals? And if not, then what are you doing? You're not doing it with love, you know, and, and, and this this kind of intentionality with um, and, and we have these idioms, you know, that are all over the world. The eye of the farmer makes the calf fat. The shadow of the farmer makes the grain grow. You know, these these things that are metaphysical, you know, and at the same time, we know that's real. You know, we see it, we experience it in farming. So one other question. Uh, in in the past couple of years that I've been uh, getting more and more familiar with KNF, there seems to be a conflation with uh, Jadam. What is the difference between KNF and Jadam, if any? What is the what? The Sorry. the difference. Sorry, no. Um, is there a difference oh, between? No, K- there's there's not there's not there's a, no I difference. Mean, yes, there's, well, it's just it's just another um, you know, it's a one side of the triangle, 
um, and natural farming. So um, Zadam uh, was um, coined by Master Cho's son. Master Cho's oh. son. Master Cho's son went to school to be a chemical engineer. So dad was teaching this boo boo ya ya, you know, uh, microbial thing. Son goes kind of an opposite direction in education and learns chemical engineering. Um, but circles right back to dad's philosophy and practices. And, mm-hmm. and, but he had a, a belief, a bent, if you will. He said, because he saw farmers struggle with the complexity of natural farming. And he's like, it's got to be simpler. It's got to just be easier. And so he basically took a lot of the philosophy and principles and just truncated it into these like extremely simple preps, extremely inexpensive, no input preps, uh, water and weeds and, you know, stuff like that. And um, he did an incredible service to the agricultural community by doing that. However, it isn't apples to apples. It isn't just a easier way to do the same thing. There's a great deal that's lost in the simplification. You could say oversimplification. But that doesn't mean that you can't farm with Chadam highly effectively, and people do. What he really did that's a great service to the whole world, um, I would say, is with his desire to give farmers tools and his background, he discovered some really cool ways of producing pesticides. Hmm. That will be the only time you'll ever hear me call them pesticides because they're really just plant nutrients that kill bugs. Um, it's just plant food. It's, it's consumable by humans. We can, we can shower in it without any negative effect. All of it for bug killing is safe to eat. And, uh, which is how, as it should be, you know, there's not a, um, and so his pesticidal suite is this wonderful complementary tool to natural farming. Natural farming had some, um, um, natural farming had some kind of tools for dealing with bugs, but not like Jadon provided. Jadon provides this complete suite. Um, I work some with the cannabis community, and this is literally all they need to never have an issue that they can't solve. And it's the most pest rot crop that I know of. And they are set with just Jadon. They're set to have a totally organic product, um, even if they have an outbreak of um, bugs. And so, and then there's some, there's some microbial, um, tech, um, JMS, Jadon microbial solution, super great tool. Um, I would say that I would make that comparison to the bone preparation and biodynamics. I would say JMS is very similar in the microbial, um, diversity you'll get out of it. So another very simple tool for a farmer to establish and cultivate microbes on their farmland. What I would say about the, um, the, you know, JMS, the horn prep and IMO is that IMO is going to cultivate diverse fungi in a way that none of the other preps do. That's Mm -hmm. again, why I come back to this being a really strong aspect of natural farming. Um, fungi are more finicky. They're harder to grow out. Um, and this method is cutting edge in its effectiveness at cultivating fungi. And so I would say that, that that's really where IMO shines and where though JMS is amazing and so so much simpler, um, you something's lost. You're getting some yeast growth, some fungal growth, but really mostly bacteria as you're going to get in the horn buried underground um, because of the anaerobic nature of that prep or those preps. And so I, I, I'd say there's that, that's, that's a difference and it can be teased out and we can ask more questions about it. But, um, so I like Jadam for its pesticides. I think if you are in India and there is not, not a single thing will be purchased for the farm. You cannot, there's not enough money to buy a single product 
then Jadam provides solutions with water and weeds and really nothing to add fertility to the soil. And so I think that is a real gift. But at the same time, uh, a lot of the Jadam preps will not play for me as a commercial farmer with a organic certification on my farm. I can lose my certification um, because of the way that those um, preps are cultured, um, the amount of E. coli that might be present, et cetera. That's, thank you. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for your time. Uh, again, you can find Chris at chrisTrump.com and, of course, the Biodynamic Guild at biodynamicguild.org. Uh, see you next time. Thank you. Thanks a lot.